Well, good morning. Well, it's morning here. <laughs> not for, not everywhere. I realize that. Good morning. Good morning. And so, um, let's see. We're going to, to catch up on the questions that we've we've missed last time. We didn't have time for. And um, let's see. So, Chuladatha, I think the question we stopped on last time was the one before Federico's question. I sent you some email and said Federico's was the last one you answered, but I was mistaken. Okay. So, was the last one we answered was uh, uh, Katyalyana's question? Okay. Um, Good. Yes, I had. I think I recall. So we'll begin with Federico's. All right. So uh, Federico asks, "Hello, Chuladasa. What is your understanding of Rigpa in Dzogchen? If you are familiar with this term, thank you." Well, nothing like getting right into the uh, depths of things. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, well this 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 is a fun question and uh, it, it, it's also one that uh, uh, that you can discuss uh, almost uh, infinitely and uh, and uh, People can get into disagreements about and things like this, but my—I'll I'll tell you what uh, uh, my experience of it is. Now, for those of you that have read the seventh interlude of *The Mind Illuminated*, uh, you'll notice that uh, I uh, uh, really stress the point that what we that what we call consciousness is a universal process of information exchange that, that uh, what we might call entities, uh, that uh, when they exchange information, that that fundamental process is happening at every level from, from the relationship of an electron and a proton in, uh, in a hydrogen atom, or even the, the quarks that make up the uh, subatomic particles, all the way up to something as complex as the human brain, information is being uh, exchanged. Actually, information is being created through interactions. And so even the exchange of information creates new information. Okay, so so consciousness is a special case of this, and uh, so for want of a, a better term, and and actually going along with the translators from uh, uh, the Tibetan, uh, but this very much fitting with the model that I've given you, you can refer to awareness 
awareness of is is the refers very directly to the process of information that is created in every interaction that occurs in the whole of uh, the whole of all that is, and uh, that uh, that information uh, is subject to being exchanged. Now, when I refer to to entities, so we're we're going to use Greg Rosenberg's uh, definition of an entity, or what he calls uh, a uh, a natural individual, and that is when, whenever there is shared receptivity between different processes that are unfolding in time, that shared receptivity allows for information exchange. So an entity is created uh, through the interactions of, of uh, processes which have the capacity for shared receptivity. Does that make sense to you? So in a, in a, in a, world, in a, in a world that is uh, accurately described by Paticca Samuppada, by, uh, by uh, causal interconnectedness and an even deeper level of interconnectedness than the causal, um, and by impermanence as continuous uh, change and process, uh, there is over and over again an interaction between uh, these, between natural individuals which form and dissipate and reform based on shared receptivity. Now, anytime there is an interaction between natural individuals, new information is created. And, uh, and that information is subject to being exchanged. So Rigpa, Rigpa is referred to as, it's translated as the clear light of the mind as a sort of uh, universe, or sorry, the sort of awareness that permeates everything that is natural to it. And so do you see how the model of the mind that I described in the seventh interlude is pointing at this? So uh, in, in the uh, uh, deep states of uh, meditation, and uh, Dzogchen and Mahamudra are both sort of intentionally geared to bring one to this place. There is a, a direct recognition of this, and one recognizes that, that what one experiences subjectively as awareness and, con and consciousness is uh, an aspect of the universe that uh, Interesting thing about this is that that some in, in modern physics, some people are beginning to use exactly the same sort of descriptive paradigm as uh, as has been has given rise to the to the term rigpa and the experience of rigpa in meditation, which is that 
you know, matter as, as particles has given way to reality, the material universe is consisting of forces and fields, you know, and, and then to uh, these actually involving uh, uh, the the uh, creation of waves in fields is uh, is what uh, and uh, fields of various kinds of force is what give rise to the appearance of particles and etc so on up to the appearance of solidity of materiality that we normally experience but it's gone a bit further than that with the recognition that all of these things that we know um, we know them by, by inference and analysis of information. And so it's being suggested more and more often that that's all there really is, is information. And this, this is a kind of a conjunction between some of the cutting edge modern physics and uh, the idea of Rigpa, that Rigpa is this fundamental quality of reality, of, of ultimate reality, uh, of, of suchness, uh, of, uh, uh, of the uh, ultimate uh, Buddha nature and so forth, is that it consists in pure awareness. And that's what Rigpa is, the clear light of the mind. So Rigpa is a universal phenomenon. And our minds manifest that rigpa as the clear light of the mind that all uh, as one discovers in the progression through insight there is a realization at some point that in the knowing is only the knowing the knowing happens just happens it's independent of any knower or even of any known that neither of those is, is anything more than a projection of the mind onto the fact of knowing in order to make it into the kind of information that we can use and do things with. And which, by the way, our brain has evolved to do that because if we came into this world uh, without our brains doing that and our minds having that experience of, of being, being an entity in a world of entities and so forth, we wouldn't be able to function very well. But in, in uh, deep states of meditation, there is a direct experience of that, the realization that there is only the knowing, there is only this, this primordial awareness or this clear light of mind, or this rigpa, and that is not just the phenomenon of the individual mind that comes to this realization, but that it is universal. So that, that is the explanation I would offer you. Like I said, it's a fun question. It's an even more fun experience. <laughs> Thank you very much for this uh, very, very illuminating answer and the clear distinction, I mean, somehow shedding a light on the difference between uh, personal and non-personal awareness, I, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. so between right. awareness and consciousness. 
yeah. this broader platform of um, universal awareness that is not necessarily individual. Yes. And the connection with physics. Thank you very much. It was very, very illuminating. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm glad you found that uh, helpful. Yes. Uh, William Wallen. Um, Regarding your model describing ultimate reality, which includes, boy, that sounds like we're going the same place again, are we? Which, does, which includes the properties of shared consciousness of thoughts, feelings, and memories, which have been interpreted as experiences of past lives. Uh, two, reality, which can be viewed in two ways, as material objects or as intermingled, interconnected consciousness and other conditioned interconnected processes without any things. Three, which is the unconditioned ground of all being, i.e. nirvana, and the expression of love in the universe. Could you please explain how your past training and experience in neuroscience and meditative experiences, reading the suttas, and reading about the historical changes of the suttas, and any other sources have led you to create this provisional model of ultimate reality. Uh, please correct any summarization of the model, which I have incorrectly stated. Um, uh, William, let me just make sure you're here with us. But if you're not, you'll, uh, you'll get a chance to hear the recording. Uh, are you here? Yes, I'm here. I'm here. Oh, okay, great. All right. So now, so you're, I, 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 the, what I get from this is, is you're curious about how, uh, how through all these different factors that this, uh, this particular model of uh, reality evolved. And the basic process that I would describe is that I started out as a seeker beginning when I was 15 years old, and I tried many, many paths to uh, knowledge and wisdom. Uh, I, for many years, held to the hope that uh, I would be able to uh, eventually know and understand everything. Um, and the two, the two uh, main uh, routes, depending on what part of the English-speaking world you speak, you live in, you call them routes or routes. But anyway, uh, two main uh, routes that I followed. One was... One was science. As a matter of fact, uh, there was a period. Uh, one was science and the other was uh, uh, religion, spirituality, philosophy. And so there was a point where my goal was to become a physical cosmologist. And at the same time, I had entered into a, uh, a Catholic seminary. I was a seminarian for a period of time. Uh, with uh, with the foolish notion that what I would learn as a as a seminarian uh, would include a, a 
profound uh, investigation of things like John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, Cloud of Unknowing, so on and so forth, Christian mysticism. And to my great chagrin, I discovered that um, that it didn't include that at all. As a matter of fact, that was completely pushed aside. Um, so I pursued, I, I continued on a spiritual path through psychedelics to, to Vedanta, uh, to uh, transcendental meditation, and ultimately discovered Buddhism when I was in, uh, uh, let's see, it would have been 45, 55, yeah, my late 20s, uh, and I, I, I knew I had arrived home. But the basic process that I underwent there, uh, and uh, I suppose this is, this is something that I really owe to Buddhism, um, it, you know, because, well, I remember the particular instance when uh, the person that was teaching me about Buddhism and I hadn't asked him to. He was actually helping me repair a broken sitar. But he was, uh, he was my first teacher. He was a Buddhist teacher. And so as we did this work, he would talk to me. And I found it very interesting. But because of the different things I'd already explored, it was sort of like, mm, okay, I'll hear this out. But one day he said to me, and remember I was a graduate student at this point, and science, uh, training in science. And he said, the Buddha said, don't take my word for any of this. Come and see for yourself. Right? And I said, okay, this sounds like, this sounds like my kind of thing. And I started to get into it. Um, and I learned a far superior form of meditation than what I had been doing with transcendental meditation and Prior to that, uh, trying trying to learn to meditate using uh, texts like uh, Patanjali's uh, uh, Yoga Sutra, and those of you who are familiar with that will realize what a uh, you know you'll have a good laugh at the thought of a young man trying to learn how to meditate from that. But the basic theme is that with enough guidance to begin to practice that. I always gave primacy to the experiential. And what I experienced, uh, I would sometimes recognize uh, uh, in, uh, in science or in the traditional literature, uh, something that seemed to be talking about the same thing. And uh, I would draw, the, uh, draw from these sources uh, uh, sort of a synthesis when it came to the science of my personal experience and what neuroscience uh, knew, which, you know, has, it, through the course of my own personal spiritual evolution, neuros just at that point in time, neuroscience was beginning to take off. We knew almost nothing about the way the brain worked uh, at the time that I became a graduate student. And the kind of research we did was rather horrible. <laughs> but uh, um, I had, the, I had the, all of the uh, commentarial sources and uh, the suttas, the, the Pali suttas to draw upon and the Mahayana suttas. Um, I'll mention here that uh, 
my first teacher, Kamananda, and my second teacher, Jodi Dhamma, were both students of Namjal Rinpoche. Namjal was originally a Theravadan monk uh, whose name was Ananda Bodhi. Uh, he met the Karmapa in, in Sikkim, spent some time there, and was recognized as the Tulku or reincarnation of Namjal Rinpoche. And so he reordained, and his teaching was very, he drew from not just every uh, Buddhist spiritual tradition, but all, all spiritual traditions. And so this kind of was my, uh, this was very formative to me and my approach. So my other source, other than, than science, was, that, was to go to this traditional literature and be able to, because of experiences I'd had in practice, be able to understand what they were saying, whereas before it was opaque. Best of all is that once I understood what they were saying, I could also understand what they were pointing to as to what I should do, do next in my practice. And uh, quite, quite surely through, through this process, there began to emerge deeper and deeper understanding that uh, went beyond the uh, more familiar and conventional description of, uh, of insight and awakening. And admittedly, up until this present day, there has been relatively little and not tremendous clarity uh, uh, about these things. They haven't been written about nor discussed because most of the history of Buddhism has been monastic and there was a weird interpretation of one part of the Vonaya where the Buddha said not to speak of uh, spiritual attainments in order for some kind of personal benefit to be achieved. And this has been interpreted for uh, up until this last few decades has been interpreted within the monastic traditions that you never discuss these things at all except with your teacher and that is a great tragedy but anyway the point is what the information that uh, was available and, and is available contained the clues and uh, so uh, it was in the process of that that this understanding emerged. Uh, I can't understate the role of neuroscience in helping me to understand this, and I can't understate the role of the polysuttas. But uh, in terms of the, in terms of these more. Uh, What's the right adjective? Well, I'll forget the adjective here. In terms of these understandings of that go beyond personal experience to a reflection of uh, what we can know and understand about ultimate reality, I owe a lot of that to Mahayana sutras. Uh, I make great reference to the Lankavatara. Uh, I don't say much about it, but I got quite a bit out of the uh, uh, the uh, 
heart sutra, I, I, I don't mean the, the short heart sutra, I mean the, uh, uh, the uh, much longer version of it. Um, and, well, all kinds of, of other sources. Uh, I would say I, w I was amazed over and over again at what uh, these masters of the past seem to have discovered through introspection that uh, coincided with what uh, science discovers through the external examination uh, of, of things. So, so that, that's the underlying process by which uh, my understanding developed and out of that understanding uh, arose these models. And it's very important to acknowledge the fact that um, one of the most important things that I learned is that wisdom, true wisdom, is knowing that you don't know. And there, there is a, that was very disappointing to me because my goal was to know everything about everything. <laughs> but it was really good to let go of that. And to instead recognize that uh, one can, uh, I don't think in the course of a human lifetime, uh, one ever reaches a point where, where there's not uh, the, the capacity to go much deeper into understanding. Uh, in terms of the four path model, uh, the fourth path is called a path for a good reason. It's not the end of a process. It's really the beginning at a whole new level. And uh, there's, there's many, there's much beyond this. But to use a, um, a metaphorical illustration, if you imagine a lar an, an infinitely large sheet uh, and you uh, represent that as everything there is that is uh, potentially knowable. And then you uh, make a little hole in that or you draw a little circle on that and paint it white or something like that and say, okay, that represents what I know. Well, of course, the more you know, the larger the uh, circumference of that circle. So the more you know, the more you know you don't know. And until ultimately in all of this, um, you can come up with models which are the way with the limitations of the human mind, you're able to describe through inference uh, about uh, ultimate reality certain properties that you can you can say with fair confidence that these may not be the ultimate truth, but they are they are true in as much as they represent the current capabilities of, uh, well, let's just make it personal, of my mind uh, and the extent of my knowledge from which to, to, to draw these inferences. So 
just to quickly go through your list, William, a shared consciousness of thoughts, feelings, and memories, which have been interpreted as experiences of past lives. I've, I have experienced those, you know, and I have also uh, experienced the, the fact that, that, uh, that these certainly can't be a series of, of past lives beyond belonging to a particular self like beads on a string, but rather that, that uh, everyone who has ever existed, that, that uh, the entirety of everything that they were still exists in what we perceive from our perspective as the past. And uh, geologists and astrophysicists and, uh, and uh, CSI detectives all are working on the basis that the, the, uh, everything that has ever happened has left its mark. And if you know how to look and explore, you can, you can trace things back to the Big Bang, that you can uh, follow the evolution of both uh, the uh, land masses and seas and physical features of the earth developmentally back to uh, the, uh, the uh, when it was a cooling ball of, of iron that and uh, the CSI detectives in their limited much more limited way can figure out who fired the gun and how and why and made something happen that uh, is in their domain uh, I uh, so having had the experience of accessing these things and recognizing that what I accessed was not, in fact, me or mine, but uh, something with which I had sufficient resonance that this became uh, accessible to me. And I've also found over and over again when teaching, it's as though... Uh, wiser minds from the past, sometimes uh, I hear the, their expression of wisdom coming through my mouth and uh, I'm learning as much as anybody that is listening to me. Um, and I could go on and on about the models that I have of how that happened. Reality can be viewed in two ways, as material objects or as intermingled interconnecting consciousness and other interconnected processes without any things. Well, this is something that's become very obvious to me, uh, you know, in not just my meditative experiences, but in my daily life as, as the products of my meditative experiences have taken hold and they have determined the, uh, the nature of uh, uh, my understanding and my own, my own perceptual processes. Uh, I'm a non-dualist in the sense that I don't believe there is any such thing as matter. There is no such thing as mine, but the, there is this, this singular stuff uh, out of which uh, all things arise and, and, and return. Uh, and that when we are experiencing that from the inside, we experience it as mind. When we experience it from the outside, we experience it as matter. But ultimately, they are not, they are not separate. They are non-dual. Um, 
the unconditioned ground of all being. Um, I could go on and on about that, but uh, uh, I won't. Um, we have to understand more clearly the term nirvana than uh, traditional religious Buddhism has led us to make, it has reified nirvana into a sort of a thing and a singular sort of thing. And the word actually means uh, the, the extinction of something. And the classic example, the way the word would have been used is if you put out a can candle, that was nirvana, you were extinguishing the flame. And in the, uh, and the metaphysics of those days, heat as an element, its proper dwelling was distributed throughout the universe. And uh, it was actually held captive by the wick of the candle. And so that by, but through the extinction of the flame, then the element of, of heat returned to its natural state uh, uh, pervading the universe. And uh, so what nirvana is pointing to is that kind of extinction. But the Buddha spoke of many different kinds of nirvana. Uh, what most people associate with nirvana is the is the cessation of all mental formations. But uh, he also speaks of nirvana as the cessation of craving and suffering uh, and uh, uh, a number of other cessations. So this is the cessation of, uh, of uh, all mental formations is a state in which um, conscious experience uh, ceases temporarily because as the Buddha said over and over again, consciousness arises with its object and passes away with its object. And uh, therefore, you know, there, there, there may be an experience that appears to be consciousness without an object, but the Buddha precluded that as being uh, a reality. I have defined consciousness as information exchange, and there can be no exchange without the content. You know, so it's basically saying the, the same thing. Um, so the unconditioned ground of all being can be described as nirvana or emptiness or Buddha nature, or there's all kinds of terms. Uh, the one, my favorite is suchness because it doesn't uh, have uh, these other meanings associated with, with it which nirvana does and emptiness does and Buddha nature does and so on and so forth. And that is how the Buddha described himself as uh, uh, tathagata, which means literally, uh, well, the gata can mean either come or gone. It means either gone to suchness or come to suchness and uh, often more explicitly described as dwelling in suchness which is, and that's the interconnectedness, the ultimate reality, the, uh, that is the ground of all things. And um, 
back to the fact of what we were calling Rigpa before, and talking about uh, the universality of information exchange. And what is the result of that? Well, if you look at the history of the universe as we know it through science, it was a period where there was just nothing but pure radiant energy. And that radiant energy coalesced into uh, the particles uh, that ultimately made up uh, atoms and that uh, ultimately make up molecules. And uh, molecules make up progressively uh, more and more complex structures, uh, uh, all, all the way up to and including uh, ourselves and, and other uh, very complex living organisms. And so when you think about it in that way, what is the result of all of this, of this information exchange? Uh, it results in the dance the, between an electron and a proton and a hydrogen atom. Uh, and it goes all the way up to the evolution of a species that, uh, like, we are the most, most uh, uh, communal species that has ever existed. Uh, we care for each other. Love has a very profound meaning in human terms, and uh, we express it in many ways to uh, uh, what would seem illogically, uh, we care for the ill and the weak and the elderly uh, at our own, uh, at, at the expense of the young and the healthy. Uh, this is an expression of love. When I look at the trajectory of the universe, and I understand it from the point of view of this sort of uh, uh, inter interactionist uh, interacted interactionness uh, I guess is the word I'm trying for uh, I see that uh, you know the, the the coalescence of energy into particles and the union of particles into atoms resembles much uh, uh, you know what we call love in human behavior. And I begin to understand love and as well as consciousness and awareness as being the familiar expressions of something that is a universal phenomenon. I, considering that the entire history of the universe has trended uh, very, very consistently in a particular direction, you know, I have no reason to believe it's going to do anything but continue to develop in that direction. And I see that, that from our human point of view, we could describe that direction as increasing love. So uh, it, I know, hopefully you get my point. Enough said. That help, William? Uh, yes, I was. I guess I was actually thinking um, specifically probably more about the idea of the of the uh, lack of reincarnation and 
or that interpretation mm-hmm. in, in what the source of that uh, arose from? Well, that arose from repeatedly realizing over and over again in many ways that there was nothing there that could be reincarnated. But right. also realizing that that just as with in, in the realm of matter, uh, nothing, nothing ever ceases to exist. With the dissolution of the body, uh, the, the material that makes up the body uh, sooner or later ends up becoming parts of, of other bodies. There are all these natural cycles that uh, occur in, in the biosphere. And from, uh, especially from a non-dualist point of view, whatever you see in matter must have its counterpart in mind. Uh, but uh, uh, the same thing with mind. Why should everything that is in a mind uh, somehow cease to exist because uh, uh, the body uh, has, has dissolved and things like uh, past experience of past lives and feeling as though that uh, I am somehow channeling beings that are probably not I mean, I don't know, but they're probably in the past. These are all things that are saying that that this is all this is all continuing to to happen and to unfold. So I would say, well, first of all, is the Buddha clearly pointed out that there was nothing that you could identify as self, and even those who choose to translate anatta as not self rather than no self, if no matter where you look. You have to say of what you find, no, not self, then that means no self. You can leave the not out. Uh, so uh, he, he pointed to no self. He used the term rebirth to refer to the rebirth of the self as a construct of the mind. And your self, a person's self, gets reborn over and over and over again. And in each new being that's born, the self, the self is born. But this is not a particular self. This is, this is just that illusion of self is constantly being reborn. And uh, the self of one individual cannot is identical to the self uh, of another in that it is an illusion that has exactly the same properties. So what then, what then might happen to what the mental aspect of a being uh, after the passing of the body? Well, I can see that, uh, this, that the qualities, let's say, let's call them the qualities of ignorance and the qualities of wisdom, continue to exist as a part of the wholeness of everything. So in essence, Every time somebody becomes awakened, then the, uh, the, the pool of awakenedness in, in, the, uh, in the totality of things is increased. And uh, likewise, when somebody uh, has uh, aspects of, of ignorance, particularly those things such as uh, cruelty and, and uh, selfishness and things like that, that's a pool that can be 
added to or withdrawn from. Uh, there are uh, Tibetan practices of taking into yourself uh, feelings like hatred and anger and transmuting them into uh, loving kindness and compassion. And I believe that that's something that we do in our own personal spiritual evolution as we take our tendencies to anger and uh, so forth and, and transmute them into, into love and understanding that we're affecting the whole. So a new being comes into existence and that mind, that brain that's genetically determined gives rise to a mind that resonates with various qualities and those qualities then uh, become part of that mind. And as a person develops in the course of their lifetime, it's not something that happens once at the beginning, but during the course of our lifetime as we develop spiritually, there's a kind of resonance that allows us to tap into this pool of wisdom and pool of love and pool of, uh, of understanding and uh, to, at the same time, bring about a transformation in uh, the totality of that through whatever they do with it. So that is what, in the sense of reincarnation, which is totally unsupported uh, by uh, all of the Buddha's true teachings, yes, there's suttas where he, he's talking about something else and people believe in reincarnation and he doesn't want to lose track of the whole point he's trying to make by, by entering into some kind of disputation. So he just accepts, okay, you know. And he even uses examples from, from belief in reincarnation to reinforce other points he's trying to make. But it's clear from the teaching itself that there's no place in there for this idea of some kind of, of self, call it a, call it a, I mean, people are desperate to find something that's a self. Uh, they try consciousness, a really popular one, and there's a wonderful sutta in which uh, Buddha just blows that apart totally with uh, Sati, the fisherman's son, who is teaching that what gets reincarnated, gets reborn in his consciousness. Uh, then there's the attempt by uh, some schools to make the mind stream into some sort of separate discrete entity that uh, can be uh, uh, reincarnated. Uh, leave all of those aside and what you have is the, uh, the all of those things that could be subsumed in one way or another under the under the rubrics of uh, wisdom and ignorance, those continue. Those, those are reincarnated, so to speak. But it's not a person that's being reincarnated. It, are, it is those mental faculties. And they don't necessarily enter into just one mind. There are those that have affinities with each other. The same person may carry within them uh, wisdom and ignorance, both. And the components of wisdom will tend to hold together and perhaps might enter into one being. The components of ignorance might enter into another being or a variety of beings. So it's much more like the transmission of 
genetic information uh, from one set of parents, the same genetic information can be transmitted to a dozen children, right? So, yeah. I've, I've found your, your model to be quite intellectually compelling, uh, to be sort of very satisfying in terms of uh, the combining of all those elements. Uh, I was just curious about the source. Thank you for this really great review. You're welcome. Um, at this rate, I'm not, we're going to have to have another five review uh, sessions here. But <laughs> I try to, well, it is what it is. I'll do my best not to be, uh, you know, uh, so long-winded and wanted to include the whole of the Dharma and answer to every question. Fabian uh, says, for the past couple of years, I've been dealing with nihilistic perspectives. There are times when I feel deeply depressed and I start worrying about taking my own life because of the toll these perspectives have on me. I've sought therapy, which has led me to you and your teachings. And so I'm seeking guidance from you on how to deal with these feelings of meaninglessness. I don't know how dense the answer to this question may be, so I'll be appreciative of any resources, practices, teachings from others you have to offer as well as your own. Uh, well, Fabian, I, you know, I, I feel deeply for you, and I hope that I can give you some uh, some thoughts and ideas that uh, you might find uh, find helpful. Uh, if you look at what I've been talking about uh, in this session that really what you imagine as yourself is merely an expression of some much greater wholeness of as that much I, a, that is also a great and wonderful mystery and um, the best way out of the nihilism that you are feeling and the depression that you are feeling is to take yourself out of the self because both the nihilism and the depression, they're closely related. But if you think about it, they are very self-centered. They involve your mind drawing conclusions such as things should not be the way they are. They're terrible. They're meaningless. Uh, there's just all this meaningless pain and suffering. My life, my life has no meaning that, you know, all, all I've done is I've suffered. I've tried. Sometimes I've succeeded. Sometimes I've failed, but it just seems like it's just, you know, it's ultimately pointless and meaningless. And, uh, and, and this, out of this uh, arises nihilism. You extend this, you look around, you say, yeah, everything that everybody's doing is equally pointless. None of this has any meaning. Uh, and what I would encourage you to do, I think what will have more powerful effect than anything else is get out of yourself. Do everything you can to be of service to, to others. 
don't question why there is the pain and suffering in the world that there is, but rather do what you can to reduce that. Don't wonder why there isn't more joy and happiness in the world than there is, but rather do what you can to create joy and happiness. Put your focus on the well-being of, uh, of others any, of any kind. If your nihilism brings you to the point, this point in time that you find it difficult to uh, express your loving kindness and compassion towards, uh, towards human beings, you know, and that's understandable. We're pretty obnoxious creatures. Then turn it towards nature. Turn it towards uh, towards the animals, the organisms, the plants, the the oceans, the planet itself. Uh, the beauty of which is a little bit unmistakable. And think of it as beauty doesn't need a purpose. Beauty just is. Support that. Um, get out of yourself and do what you can for, for the world. Um, the meaning of life is the meaning that you, uh, I could say the meaning you create for yourself, but I'd rather say it's the meaning that you discover that's already there waiting for you to discover it. So rather than sinking into nihilism and sinking into depression and into that craving for escape and the void that would that you somehow imagine that taking your life would lead to, drop that. Leave all of that behind. Turn outward. Turn outward with love, appreciation, uh, Do something to, to make things better. Not, not for you. Uh, discover your own meaning in things through uh, love and compassion. And Fabian, I sincerely hope that that little bit of advice helps. I know uh, in, in my experience that that is the most powerful thing that you can do. Uh, which doesn't preclude the therapy that you seek uh, or, or anything else. But uh, yeah, and, uh, as if Fabian's here, I hope that this uh, has uh, been of use and strikes home in some way. And if you're not, I hope, certainly hope you listen to the recording. Because I, I honestly believe that uh, you'll find what I'm saying to be of enormous value. Okay, next we have John Selwyn. Let's just check, see if John is here. Hey, John, John is here, great. Okay. Um, when I focus on the breath with the nostrils and the sensations are very faint, 
Sometimes I seem only to be able to detect some during one third of the exhale. Also, my inhale is very short and my exhale very long, and I don't feel much of it. I have many years of meditation experience, but I'm new to this method of focusing on the breath of the nose. Will I develop more sensitivity and be able to feel more with practice, or am I a case of someone who should focus on the movements of the abdomen instead, as I've heard you say in a talk on YouTube? Well, um, the fact that you are able to detect the sensations for part of the breath is very promising. If you find that uh, I'm not sure what stages in the practice you are, but if you find that following the movements, uh, I, I would say follow the sensations of the abdomen. Uh, I really stress the sensations of the breath at the nose and I'll, say, I'll stress the sensations of the breath at the abdomen. Because we want to focus as much as possible in this practice at all times. Uh, on what is actually appearing in consciousness rather than uh, what are the elaborations our mind can make from it. And movement is an elaboration of, an, of a, a sensation. With your eyes closed, you have a sensation that your mind interprets as movement. But nevertheless, it's a, it's a sensation prior to it becoming an interpretation of movement. So um, there's nothing wrong at all with uh, using the movements uh, at abdomen or the sensations of movement at the abdomen. Um, at some point, you may find it much easier to detect sensations at the nostrils. Uh, when you get to stages five and six, you'll be using the uh, 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 body scanning method. And an important part of that method there is in, in both stages is that you do the body scan for a while and then you go back to the nose and see if you can sustain that, that clarity and that powerful perception. Are you, uh, uh, in the case of stage six, if you go back to the breath and sustain that uh, exclusive attention that you've had while doing the body scan. So I think you might very well discover that uh, starting out using the abdomen, developing the basic skills in, uh, uh, that allow you to uh, uh, use these faculties of, of attention and awareness um, to their greatest extent, that, uh, that there will come a point where you can probably use the breath uh, at, at the nose and take advantage of the particular uh, uh, the particular advantages that it provides for some of the later practices, okay? Nothing wrong with using the breath at the abdomen, and uh, I suspect that you'll find. Uh, actually, you know, we go through life, one of the things that a normal person uh, just filters out and is almost never aware of, except under certain circumstances, is the sensations of breath at the nose. Uh, they're, they're more likely to be aware that they're breathing heavily or they're breathing faintly or something like that, which is at a totally con uh, conceptual level. And 
they're in the practice. We all tend to be in the lifetime practice of ignoring the, the sensations and living in the realm of our conceptual interpretation of those sensations. So, uh, uh, the, as a meditation object, this is going back. This is going back a step to something more fundamental. So, uh, being in the habit of, of not paying any attention to those sensations, I think might explain why you find it hard. Uh, I found some people that, you know, uh, just as I was suggesting might be in your case, they find that using the abdomen is better. Uh, and and uh, that point comes when they can just as easily experience the sensations uh, of the breath in, in their nose and also in their hands and feet and legs and arms and top of their head as well. Hope that helps. Um, do you think it will? Yes, I think it will. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. uh, Jean-Luc, in the previous months I've had many insights and I've experienced uh, in retire the possibility of not creating mental suffering, even in the face of very strong emotions like loss and fear. Now I feel that something in me is shifting. In many situations that previously triggered desire and aversion, I feel that my mind doesn't react and it is in sort of a stasis. It seems like that the submind doesn't know how to respond. And when I respond in the old habitual way, aversion or desire, I dislike the sensation and corresponding mind state. But in the same way, it appears that there is no response and is a very strange phenomenon and I'm not very comfortable with it. I wonder how the process will continue to change me and how it will impact my life. Well, we could have, we, uh, we could have a much longer conversation where I ask you questions about how this developed. But what you, what you are having a firsthand experience of is the way that uh, uh, so much of our suffering is mind-created. As a matter of fact, the Buddha makes a distinction between dukkha of physical origin and dukkha of mental origin. And I use the word pain to describe the first and suffering to describe the second, just to help clarify the distinction. And then say that pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. And that, uh, it's, as was pointed out by the Buddha in his uh, simile of the second arrow, physical pain is being like being struck with an arrow. And then the mind's reaction, the suffering it generates in response is like being shot with a second arrow. And uh, uh, to, to realize that firsthand, and especially to be able uh, not to shoot yourself with a second arrow when you experience physical pain is a wonderful discovery. And it's a large step towards realizing that so much of our suffering has nothing to do with anything physical at all. Uh, it is uh, the emotions like loss and fear, which you mentioned, and so many others, that the mind reacts to through resistance. Uh, when we say that craving causes suffering, let's look at what we mean by craving. It's ultimately, craving is wanting things to be different than how they are. 
desire for something you don't have or desire to hold on to something that you do have, we both know in uh, uh, reality the latter is impossible. So the suffering that's associated with desire is wanting things to be different than they are, wanting to have something you don't, wanting what you do have not to ever pass away. The same thing with aversion. It is much more obviously so that it is wanting things to be different than they are. If you're in the presence of something or someone you dislike, you want things to be different than they are. If you're experiencing pain or have loss, uh, loss or fear or something like that, you want things to be different than they are. Craving can be thought of as resistance to what is. And as somebody once said, to resist what is, is insanity. Now, to do something about it is just real common sense. But to resist the fact of it uh, is the kind of insanity uh, that, uh, that manifests as craving and that leads to suffering. So it's wonderful that you're having this direct experience of this. Whether this is the result of having achieved insight and perhaps even uh, having achieved some degree of awakening, I couldn't tell without a much, much longer conversation. Or whether it's something that's been brought about in a different way, it is demonstrating to you, it is teaching you, it's a profound teaching if you, if you look into it, that will lead to, if, if it's not already the case, that you have some degree of insight and awakening, this is an opportunity which, if you investigate, can lead to the kind of uh, insight and, and awakening uh, that provides the level of understanding that I sense from your question is not quite well developed uh, yet. So, but yeah, in any way, congratulations on your experience, Jean-Luca. Uh, I, I am happy to hear that you're experiencing this, and I wish you the best. Uh, please, please practice meditation, and uh, uh, if you aren't already, keep on practicing, and, and uh, it will take you where you want to go. Okay. Wondering if you're here and can would like to give me any response to that. Looks like you're not here. Well, okay. Alexander Morisov. Hi, if I'm not mistaken, it's about one hour until the event. Please don't forget. <laughs> okay. Well, that happened. Okay. It looks, it looks like we have finished all of these questions in, uh, in what is for me a remarkably short period of time. <laughs> so, um, since uh, I have a few minutes left, if anybody would like to give me any feedback or go into anything in any more depth, please, we'll, we, I, I'm willing to spend a little, little bit of time doing that in dialogue here.
Tuladasa, if you want, there are actually some questions from the previous Q&A that we could go through. Okay, that sounds good. I have good. a question too, if you want have a moment. Okay, well, why don't we take your question first and then I'll look at these previous questions. This is Katayana here. Thank you so much again. And um, I just wanted to, you know, after Thanksgiving, we had a beautiful gratitude um, meditation yesterday. And um, it, it was brought up to think of gratitude as the 11th parameter. Could you, could you just in the same way you talked about love and, you know, it's uh, the, pow the most powerful force within the universe for healing. Uh, could you talk about gratitude as well, just a, a little bit? Yes, yes. Gratitude. Uh, yes, gratitude. Gratitude is it. It, it is. It's, it's wonderfully powerful, and um, that is something that uh, I think is unique to uh, beings with minds that are capable of a degree of understanding and appreciation to give rise to, to gratitude. So that's one of those things that we benefit uh, so very, very much by, uh, by developing. Uh, we had a Thanksgiving dinner here last night and uh, uh, I was asked to do a blessing before the di dinner. And what I chose to use is, uh, is something that's called the mandala prayer, which uh, if you get into the details of which uh, creates a, an attitude of gratitude and loving kindness. Uh, and it goes like this. Here is the great earth filled with the smell of incense covered with a blanket of flowers. Now we can extend the poetic imagery here, that here is this wonderful world we live in, and it's not just the smell of incense and a blanket of flowers, but it is all of the wonderful experiences that present themselves to our senses. You know, the, the smell of the pine forest and the desert after rain and, and uh, the sounds of birds singing and uh, the beauty of the sky as a storm is either building or passing away. And it goes on and on. And, and to be in gratitude for uh, this great earth and, and what, what beauty what wonder it offers to us. And the prayer continues. Uh, the great mountain, the four continents. Uh, now, the, this, is, this is in reference to Mount Meru, which used to be thought of as the center of the universe, and they only knew of four continents, beside the point. The great mountain, the four continents. This planet has such incredible variety seashores of many different kinds, uh, plains, uh, deserts, mountains, once again, of many different kinds, jungles, uh, northern forests. Uh, there's just such a variety uh, in, in this world, you know, uh, 
once again, uh, we are so blessed that we exist in a realm which is so beautiful. Yes, there are problems. Yes. But that shouldn't stand in the way of the tremendous gratitude that we're capable of having and appreciating the wonder of this, this world that we're a part of. And it continues on. Wearing a jewel of the sun and the moon. So this is just carrying us one step further that it's not just this planet. It's the, the, the poetry of the prayer only mentions the sun and the moon. And perhaps at the time that it was written, the stars were just too mysterious and things like that. But we know now and we can appreciate that, that this goes way beyond the world that we see around us today or even this whole planet. That this, this is a universe of just incredibly wondrous and phenomena, uh, the beauty of which is just beyond comprehension. And then we finish up with saying, in my mind I make of this a paradise of the Buddha, and I offer it to you all, sentient beings everywhere. By this deed may all beings come to know your world, free of suffering. So now this is really, this is where we're going. We free ourselves from suffering and it allows us to be in this state of gratitude and appreciation. But to the degree to which we can experience and manifest that gratitude and appreciation, no matter where we are on our spiritual path, and even if we're not intentionally on a spiritual path, to experience that kind of gratitude and appreciation is a deeply spiritual act. To see beyond, it's so easy for us to dwell on what's wrong. But to see beyond that, to the incredible wonder of what is, and to hold the wish that all beings may be free from suffering and all beings may be able to experience this wonderful world. So you might find that to be uh, um, a, a nice thing to practice in, in your own life. Although, knowing you, Kajayana, I think that you're probably already in that place. So, Well, and thank you so much. It's so beautiful what you just said. Um, also, while you were talking, it came to me that, um, in a way, gratitude is also very much an acceptance of the suchness of things. And in that acceptance, you also develop that gratitude. It's a, it's a symbiotic, synergistic, <clears throat> relationship which is so lovely and yes. the, the one feeds on the other and in that suchness and then that right. gratitude so thank you so much it's so nice to see you and have a wonderful holiday season <laughs> thank you the same to you now let me look and see if we got some older questions here that I... no 
I, I just actually went through the questions and the only two questions that are left are a question that Andrea asked and a question that I asked, which I think you've actually answered because we asked you at another time. So oh, okay. we don't really need to do those if you wanna, if you wanna call this a, a success. I think we've, we've uh, succeeded admirably here. I, I, yeah, that, that works for me. We can all get on with uh, our other things. So uh, we're actually caught up. It's wonderful. So hope to see uh, all of you uh, on, uh, next week. And we do a November Q&A with all, all kinds of new questions, okay? All right. So, all right. Best wishes to all of you. Thanks, Chuladasa. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Yeah.